what I'm objecting to is this kind of position that says it is morally good and state money is morally bad. Money is neutral, money is just a thing, right? Uh, there is no morality in money. Hello there from Bedford. How are you all? Another crazy week for Bitcoin. After that little dip, we got back up to 40k. We're looking pretty healthy, right? What a year. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I moderate a debate between Francis Coppola and Nick Carter, where we work through some of Francis's criticisms of Bitcoin. But before that, you know I've got a message from my sponsors, so make sure you check them out. Without the sponsors, I could not do this. Okay, we're going to kick off with my new sponsor, Exodus Wallet, who I will be using from now on as my mobile and desktop wallet for Bitcoin. And I've been looking for a wallet like this for a while now because I'm starting to use Bitcoin more day to day. I currently use Casa for my deep cold storage, but I am increasingly running my company using Bitcoin. I'm paying people, I'm getting paid in Bitcoin, and I needed a desktop wallet for doing all my admin and Bitcoin payments. And the reason I really liked Exodus after they approached me and showed me was the UX. It's just so damn easy to use. They've crushed it. So make sure you go and check out Exodus Wallet. That is at exodus.io or Google Exodus or search in the Apple or Google App Stores. Also, let's talk about Casa. You've heard about these for a long time now. I have been a customer for nearly eight months. They are the best in Bitcoin security. If you are making good gains during this bull run, you really, really need to be taking this shit seriously. With Casa, you get to protect yourself from hackers, your own personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failure, and so much more. And... With Casa, they have a product for every Bitcoiner. With Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and that is only $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their 3 of 5 multi-sig, and that's the best protection for large Bitcoin holders, and that also comes at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering, which includes a customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best in class in security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And also, let's talk about my good friends, sportsbet.io, over in Estonia, the best place for online gaming, the place that accepts Bitcoin, the place that promotes Bitcoin. They have stuck a Bitcoin logo on the front of a Southampton shirt. They are also the betting partner of Arsenal. So if you're watching Premier League football and you're seeing Bitcoin logos, that is Sportsbet who've done this. They are putting the Bitcoin logo out there across the world for the billions of people who watch Premier League football. And listen, with Sportsbet, you have every market you could possibly be interested in. They've got football, tennis, US sports, motorsports, they've even got esports. Everything you can think of. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. Just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions to find out more. And that is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Okay, so on to the show today. And this is quite an interesting show. As some of you will have seen last week, economist and author Frances Coppola found herself debating Bitcoiners on Twitter when she tweeted a suggestion that Bitcoin is not a scarce asset. And everyone polled in and gave her some shit. I did too. But Frances was open to coming on the show. I mentioned to her, I said, come on, let's let's get this debate done. 
And while she's been very critical of Bitcoin, often debating Bitcoiners online, she agreed to do the show to discuss some of these fundamental points. But I knew I was out of my depth. I prefer to ask questions. I don't like to debate Bitcoin. I'm not particularly good at it. So I asked my good friend Nick Carter to come on and bat for Bitcoin. And there's no one really better than Nick. I mean, he's been on the show seven times and he killed it as ever. But listen, this didn't turn out as expected. If you're hoping for fireworks, I think you're going to be disappointed. It was actually a very reasonable debate. And while I mostly disagree with a lot of the things Francis says, she does raise some interesting questions. And more than anything, it was just good to hear from a critic of Bitcoin. I should probably do more of this, to be honest. And just on another note, I also noticed there's been some quite aggressive attacks against Francis on Twitter. Look, criticism is fine, but some of the more personal comments I think are a bit unnecessary. Like, Francis is happy to debate with people. She was very nice, very friendly, and I just think it's a bit of a dick move to start making personal comments. So hopefully we'll see a little bit less of that. Anyway, listen, I hope you enjoy this show. If you've got any questions or feedback, you know you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, on Defiance, I've just released a new show about election fraud and media bias following everything that's been going on in the US. It's with Isaac Soul. It's well worth checking out. I've had some really great feedback on that show. That's available at defiance.news. Outside of that, have a great weekend, and I will see you all next week. Well, listen, Nick's, Nick's been on the show six times previous, so I'm going to welcome you first, Francis, because this is your first time on the show, first time we've spoken apart from a little bit on Twitter. Um, how are you? And thank you for coming on. Fine. It's good to be here. Great. And Nick, welcome back. You've been here many times before. I appreciate you coming to uh, debate the other side. Thank you, Peter. I'm excited to regain my crown as the the king of uh, what Bitcoin what Bitcoin did number seven now appearance number seven. Number Let's seven. go. Well, well, I push you joint with uh, Jameson, so we'll have to squeeze another one in. Okay. Well, listen. Look, one interesting thing, Francis, that happens quite regularly is I get lots of emails from listeners, and I'm regularly being asked to bring on detractors. Uh. They're saying you're too positive about Bitcoin. You're not dealing with the arguments. You know, you're all about the moon, blah, blah, blah. So it's actually great to get you on. I actually find you one of the more reasonable uh, detractors, even though I don't entirely agree with you. Uh, so I appreciate you coming on. Just so anyone listening who knows, I am pro-Bitcoin, but I'm going to try and sit outside of the argument and just try and moderate this and allow you to, to discuss it. Um, just to begin with, Francis, can I ask you, with regard to Bitcoin, in all honesty, if you heard good enough and solid enough arguments, do you think you would change your viewpoint with it? Or do you feel very entrenched in your view with Bitcoin and you're unmovable? Can I distinguish between two things? Um, yep. we need, there is Bitcoin itself and a lot of the stuff around that, a lot of the economic around arguments around that. And there's the wider um, cryptocurrency ecosystem. And there are two different things there. Um, I am... Yep quite negative about Bitcoin itself, because I think the economics doesn't make sense. And that doesn't mean I'm negative about the whole of cryptocurrency. I'm certainly not. I think there's something exciting yes. going on in the space. I just have serious reservations about Bitcoin itself because of the economics. That's kind of funny because I would say me and Nick probably, well, I'll answer, let Nick answer it for himself, but I'm kind of the opposite. Yeah. I'm quite negative about the cryptocurrency industry and positive about Bitcoin. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We could have an interesting yeah, discussion about why that is then, why, why I as an economist think the economics of Bitcoin doesn't make sense, but the cryptocurrency industry as a whole has some interesting things going on. So, But do you think your mind can be changed? Um, I am really not a fan of very hard 
money. I mean, Bitcoin as it is now seems to have taken over from the extreme gold bugs that crawled out of the woodwork after the financial crisis. And I had lots of arguments with them too, and they never managed to change my mind either. So I'm not entirely sure why Bitcoin would succeed when they failed. Okay, that's fair. What about you, Nick? Do you think there's any chance or any possibility of the right arguments put in place you would actually turn against Bitcoin, turn negative? Oh, I I think that's unlikely. I mean, I try to be Bitcoin moderate. I jokingly said that I'm a Bitcoin moderate now. <laughs> so I try not to be completely evangelical about it. I think that Bitcoin is a good system. You know, it functions well. And I, I think it's sort of a morally good system. I think it's something that should exist in the world. And it's a safety net for potentially a lot of people. Uh, it's an alternative to central banks. If Bitcoin were to fail, though, I would happily embrace whatever the successor is. You know, so it's it's not all or nothing for me. Um, I totally accept that there's a possibility this experiment fails. At that point, I'll uh, I'll look for uh, whatever's next. But I think something like Bitcoin should exist. I really want to okay. ask a question, if I may, because you said something there, Nick, that I think is really kind of hits to the heart of what's going on here. You said it was a morally good system, and I actually fundamentally disagree with that. I don't think it is. Um, and if I can explain, and I think this is, a lot of the discussions I've been having recently have been around this kind of question, not so much of economics, but of morality. What is a moral good? Um, and the, the moment you start saying, I think it's morally good, I think we, we are kind of discussing we've gone way beyond economics and money and things like that into sort of much more existential and philosophical questions really that i think maybe be worth picking up well I th yeah we can start there i i mean it jumps in ahead of some of my questions but <laughs> I, my first point there to you would be do you actually think bitcoin should not be allowed to exist francis do you think it should be banned I, I'm generally a, a little bit libertarian in some respects, so I don't have a problem with Bitcoin existing. I have a problem with Bitcoin is trying to seize the moral high ground. Something can exist just as a thing, as a product, as a good. If people want to invest in it, that is their choice. I'm not going to inter interfere with that. Where I have a problem is with the, the kind of the normative, you should invest in this because it is morally good. I don't agree with that, and I think that is unfair reasoning. Well, let's unwrap then. Then, why do you think? What is your argument for it not being morally good? Um, I think it boils down to sort of what you consider to be the role of of money and of governments, particularly, and whether you regard money as a good thing in itself, some independently of of the state and the community of which the identity that you hold. And I have, I am troubled by the idea that our our governments and our states, our nation states, our identity as as who we are really is so bad that we need something outside those to attach ourselves to to give us a moral anchor. That doesn't seem quite right to me. And I'm also concerned with the idea that there is some kind of kind of permanent, immutable, unchangeable anchor. Um, that people can attach themselves to, which will protect them against anything that can happen in the world. Um, because, I mean, down the centuries, that's been the role of God, really. So are you regarding Bitcoin in some respect as a replacement for God? 
No, they change and decay and all around I see, O thou that changest not, abide with me. And are you seeing Bitcoin as that immutable, unchangeable thing upon which people can always rely for all eternity, replacing faith in a God who will take care of you, who will provide for you, who can be completely relied upon? Um, you know, so I, there are lots of, of issues with this that I, I struggle with. And I struggle with that. I'm going to clip in my colours to the mask and say, I struggle with that idea of Bitcoin as the unmutable, unchangeable, totally reliable thing to which, on which you can, in which you can put your faith. Um, I struggle with that as a Christian because it seems to me to go against what the Bible teaches about relying on God to provide. Well, I'm an atheist, so I... I... <laughs> I can't really uh, add to that, but Nick. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, for the record, uh, I'm a, I'm a Christian as well, and uh, I haven't found a contradiction uh, between uh, my faith and Bitcoin. I that's an interesting argument, though. I don't know if I've ever heard that before. I tend to think that they're very distinct concerns. One has to do with protection from uh, a capricious nation state. And uh, the other one is, you know, metaphysical, sort of ontological, you know, pursuit. And I know it's very popular to describe Bitcoin as religious in nature. And, and you can certainly identify the trappings of religion in Bitcoin if you look hard enough. But I like to push back against that. I mean, to me, Bitcoin is a pragmatic thing. Um, it's a way for individuals to safeguard their savings you know, relative to the state, um, and it's an independent property rights system, which exists outside of the established legal system, uh, and you know doesn't rely on our our current institutions for it to function. It functions on its own through cryptography and incentives. You know, so I think that's really the purpose of it. And if you look at where it's popular today, it's in places where those institutions are decaying. Or absent, or property rights are really not being respected, you know. So it's popular in China, popular in Venezuela, Colombia, Turkey, like places where you see currency crises. And while you know a lot of people see money as inherently a creation of the state and sort of totally indexed to the state's role in the economy, I think there's always going to be a role for non-state. Monetary commodities, historically gold has served that purpose. And then today, Bitcoin is, um, is it just in my view, a slightly more high-powered version of gold, essentially. So Francis, what do you think about Nick's point there in that, you know, should we all accept the state and the state's mistakes and, and the impact that might have on us? Or do you not see actually a, a solid moral argument for Bitcoin in that it gives people an opportunity to opt out from the state and the mistakes they might make, which impacts the wealth that we've created. For example, we've seen what's happened in Lebanon and there's high inflation in Turkey right now. We've seen what's happened in Venezuela. C can you not see a moral argument for people to actually have that opt-out? Oh, no, I can see the argument for that. When I said already that I don't have a problem with people opting to use that. Um, and there are cases where that would make the sense the it seems the sensible thing to do. Um, I think what I'm objecting to is this kind of position that says it is morally good and state money is morally bad. And I've seen that argument made in a book recently, which purported to be a Christian book. And I struggle with that because money is neutral. Money is just a thing, right? Uh, there is no morality in money. The love of money 
is identified as being a bad thing because of the distortions it, play, it creates in human behavior and the way in which it cuts them off from the love of God. Um, but money is just a thing. It's a means to an end. It's not a thing. In it, it's not a thing in itself. So the moment you start trying to claim that money, some kind of money is intrinsically moral, then I think you're on fairly kind of sort of swampy ground, really. Yeah. So a few, a few sentences back, you know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, the morality of Bitcoin as being, you know, you, you notice in the Bitcoin community, it's seen as, you know, people exhorting others to invest in Bitcoin. I think that that's definitely not my stance to be clear. You know, I, you know, I brought up the morality of the Bitcoin because I believe that it's good, you know, like ideologically, fundamentally that it exists period. I don't, I wouldn't ascribe a moral status to investing in Bitcoin or not. You know, I think that's an individual's decision and I'm not encouraging anyone, at least not right now to invest in it. Um, so just to, you know, briefly clarify my, my position on the thing, but yeah, I, I do think fundamentally it's, it's good that there are alternatives to, you know, sovereign currencies. Francis, I've been through your Twitter and I've collected up some of your most strongest arguments against Bitcoin. Um, but just to help us, do you th- you've, you've already mentioned the economics, but could you articulate the main issues that you have and we can use those as a framework for the next section? I think a lot of my issue with Bitcoin is to do with the incentive structure, really. I mean, the whole concept of a deflationary um, asset, an asset that naturally appreciates over the over time, actually makes it very difficult to use as a medium of exchange. And yet, you know, if you go back right back to the beginning of Bitcoin, where it started, it was about a medium of exchange. It was presented as a peer-to-peer payments n- network. That's what the white paper says. Um, and that is what it was promoted as in its early days. I was there. I remember it as a payment system disintermediating the banks that had nearly blown up the world. That was what it was supposed to do. And lots of us were quite in favour of it because of that. Um, and improving international payments, which have been, which are a mess. Um, they're better now than they were, but not hugely better. Um, and on which the banks had a stranglehold and a very expensive one too. Um, and governments had a stranglehold. You know, the US government with the sanctions actually making it impossible, for example, for charities in Gaza to get any funds. Um, you know, things like that. Uh, Bitcoin offered a way of of getting around that kind of unreasonable thing. Um, and it lost somewhere around about 2015, it lost the plot. Um, I think it happened when Bitcoin um, started to hit capacity limits. Um, it was around about 2015, as I recall, when the whole scaling debate blew up and it became apparent that Bitcoin was, as it stood then in that design, its original design was not going to handle the capacity needed to become a main international medium of exchange and we then had the big block size debates and segwit and all the rest of it and bitcoin itself bitcoin core we had the bitcoin bitcoin cash hard fork yeah and bitcoin core at that point that's when the pivot happened to this kind of digital gold um bitcoin standard underpin the whole um world currency let's all save in bitcoin um, and it'll appreciate naturally over time. And that's really when the whole kind of hard money economics took took hold. Prior to that, it wasn't so dominant. Um, and um, which is why I said that in, in Bitcoin's early years, I was having these arguments with gold bugs, not with Bitcoiners. 
So it's almost like there's been a pivot at some point for Bitcoin core, and I'm using that term carefully, to, to in a way take over from the gold bugs on the uh, we need a form of hard money, um, the whole we should return to the gold standard, we should, everybody should save in, in gold, all this kind of stuff we were getting straight after the financial crisis seems to have transplanted itself into Bitcoin core. And that's a lot of my objection to it is that I feel that um, although it's reasonable to have something like gold, Bitcoin, whatever, as an asset for people to save in, trying to use that as a medium of exchange um, is a recipe actually for rising inequality and um, it, uh, scarcity and and uh, um, really a lot of difficulty for people who for whom that asset is going to become increasingly expensive. And if what you want to do is fix poverty and hunger and all those things, adopting a deflationary currency isn't the right way to do it. Okay. Um, so I don't think – I think I understand your argument. I don't agree with your entire – version of history but i don't think we need to kind of to, to analyze that in terms of dates and stuff i actually have a small amount of sympathy for the idea that um bitcoin was originally meant to be uh, a medium of exchange mm. i've often found it confusing that people argue against the fact that it did say a peer-to-peer -peer, mm. uh, currency and it did talk about online transactions i don't know what your feeling on that is nick but just before i hand over to you nick it does sound to me therefore francis you were originally a bit of a fan of bitcoin. I was. In its early years, okay. yeah, I was because I, okay. you know, I I started writing in the, the the monetary space after the financial crisis because I knew about banks, um, I understood banks, I knew how they worked, and I I could see the need for something better in the form of a payment system than certainly what we had at the time. It, it's a matter of some sorrow to me that Bitcoin seems to have, Bitcoin itself seems to have deviated off in this other direction, which I don't think is particularly constructive. Nick, do you have any sympathy for people who read the white paper and saw a peer-to-peer -peer electronic exchange and talked about the um, e-commerce online and you know being at all for e-commerce? Do you have any sympathy for the people who think it might have changed or feel like Bitcoin changed? Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, and, and if you look at um, you know, arguably the number one promoter of Bitcoin from the early days to present, Andreas Antonopoulos. He promoted Bitcoin as a alternative payment system for the internet, cheap, effective, global, you know, low fee, fast. Uh, obviously, Roger Ver, another mm -hmm. you know kind of infamous now advocate of Bitcoin, saw it the same way, and you know, is this conflict of visions that led us to a schism of sorts uh, or a falling out or disillusionment. Uh, but yes, a lot of Bitcoin's early advocates saw it, you know, in my opinion, in a somewhat um, reductive or wrong-headed way, as like uh, a payment system in the mold of Venmo or, or PayPal. Now, you know, I would stress that like the white paper says a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. I, my under, in, you know, my understanding of the way that Satoshi meant cash is a fast-settling, you know, payment system where transactions are final. You know, and, and so there's no there's no transactional recourse. So, you know, the question is like, how do you build a cash system on the internet uh, with with finality? And uh, you know, you know that expression like, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you have to invent the universe first. It's kind of that situation because 
you know, there had been other attempts at digital yeah. cash before. You know, Bitcoin wasn't the first. Mm-hmm. And basically, they were centralized and they mostly failed. So, you know, the question is, how do you build a, a full, like the, how do you build a cash system? You, you need a base. And so, you know, in my, my understanding of Bitcoin is it's a monetary system at the base and then kind of a payments or transactional system on top of that. Um, you know, if you look at DigiCash, for instance, that was a cash system online, but it was completely centralized and it basically failed because it was indexed to the fate of this single company. Now, Bitcoin, Satoshi had to figure out a way for it to be resilient and robust. And he basically couldn't work out a way to have it reference an external asset like the dollar in a you know in a decentralized way. And we still don't really have a decentralized, a truly decentralized stable coin, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion. So I think you know Satoshi didn't have the opportunity to build that dollar-based medium of account into the system and instead had to devise a monetary policy which was completely internal completely sort of endogenous and self-referential monetary policy and so he opted for the 21 million un- the limit of 21 million units it could have been any limit but the point was he had to devise monetary policy because he had to build the monetary system so that he could build the payment system on top of it. So you can sort of trace how those design decisions were arrived at based on the constraints that he faced at the time. So, you know, we we've tried digital cash systems based on, you know, sovereign currencies in the past, but kind of my view of Bitcoin is that you had to create the underlying monetary basis first and then build the transactional network on top. The other point that I would briefly make would be certain early Bitcoin adopters and evangelists did see Bitcoin as a uh, a store value style asset uh, as opposed to merely a payment system. So I would point out, you know, Hal Finney, the first person outside of Satoshi to edit the software, you know, talked about Bitcoin as a high powered reserve asset for a analog of a neo free banking system, basically. So Bitcoin is a gold-like analog. If you look at some of Satoshi's other writing, he explicitly compares Bitcoin to gold. You know, really talks about it as more of a, a monetary commodity. Although you could say that he's contradicting yes. himself in doing that. But so there were certainly factions of early Bitcoiners that saw it as a gold-like commodity to serve as the base of that monetary pyramid, as opposed to merely just uh, a payment system. Um, a couple of th- something I've brought up recently, Francis, in a couple of my interviews is I've recently read the Jonathan Haidt book, The Righteous Mind, where I was trying to understand political division. And one of the things he talks about there is the different moral foundations of conservatives and liberals. And when you raise the issue of Bitcoin becoming more expensive mm. and you worry about it uh, creating wider inequality, yeah. that makes me think you're probably more likely, therefore, progressive. You're you're a liberal and that falls under the care harm moral foundation that your first foundation is you worry about the harm to others. W- would I be accurate in that? Yes, I think assumption? that is a fair, a fair assessment. Um, and like I said, that if you think about where I come from, what I said about my background and how I got into this space in the first place was to do with the fact that the existing system was doing a great deal of harm. But in my mm-hmm. whole book, which is about QE, is about the harm that QE does and the way in which we could do 
we could do things better. Um, no, so it's not that I'm any fan of what we're doing in the conventional system. I just don't think that Bitcoin solves the problems. I think that Bitcoin potentially makes creates different problems or other problems. And it doesn't solve the fundamental problem of poverty and inequality at all. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot of conservatism that wraps around Bitcoin. Uh, the socialist Bitcoiners or the progressive Bitcoiners tend to get uh, shouted down quite a bit. Mm. There's a lot of conservatism about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not a lot of individualism, and therefore the kind of like the the the, the moral foundations you have don't tend to tend to sit with some of the Bitcoiners. Mm. Nick, what do you think of that point though? That you know, as Bitcoin becomes you know, more expensive in terms of uh, the nominal price, do you think that creates wider inequality? That can create wider inequality, or is that a moot point? Well, um, I'll just briefly um, respond to Francis' point about inequality. I think it's probably a little bit of an unfair standard to, you know, require that Bitcoin would were to solve something like inequality. I think that's a broader societal issue, and I don't see any single asset or asset class being able to solve that. And that's ultimately something that I would place at the feet of the central bank. And I agree. I think uh, QE and extremely loose uh, monetary policy has been, you know, very much um, a cause of the inequality we see in society, especially this take 2020, a year where asset prices skyrocketed and most regular working class folks uh, were unemployed, you know. While we were injecting trillions of dollars into the economy, for the most part, those those weren't direct injections to households, but it went through the corporate sector, ended up trapped, you know, in the financial sector. So, I I I I would <laughs> place a lot of the blame for the extreme inequality we see in society at the at the feet of the central I bank. Can I can uh, I jump I, in because I, I disagree with you? I'm critical of central well, banks. Let, yes, okay, but if sure. I may jump in, Francis, the problem. Well, Francis, Nick, sorry, was there anything you needed to finish there? Just oh, sorry. No, 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 no. Yeah, go ahead. By all means. Is that yeah, okay? Sorry, I really did want yeah, to pick you up fine. on this because I keep hearing this, and I hear it actually in the conventional world as well. This is not just a Bitcoin thing; that it's all about central banks. And one of the things I've been saying, I think, for ten years, is it's not all about central banks. If you actually look at the the wide wealth inequality we have, that actually goes back to the nineteen eighties and the original cause was actually the Reagan era tax cuts. In other words, it was fiscal policy that caused wealth inequality. Yes, okay, so QE doesn't help. Um, it raises asset prices, which it is designed to do. Um, it's an interest rate tool, and when you raise asset prices, you depress interest rate, or you depress yields, and that's what it's designed to do. But uh, And so you've benefited asset holders, and you haven't benefited people who don't, and you've priced out people who don't have assets, right, which is the criticism. But... The, the fiscal policy, when we have tax cuts for the rich, like we had in the 1980s and we had again in America within the last few years, they widen inequality much faster and much more effectively than anything central banks do. And my main criticism of central banks is that actually what they do is not very effective generally. Fiscal policy is way more right. powerful and we have frightened ourselves into not using it. Yeah. I, 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 that's fair. I mean, my my pushback to that would be that Reagan only governed for eight years out of the last fifty. Um, and yeah, but the tax cuts you know, remained. The tax cuts were never restored. Yeah, but uh, you know, I I think like if you had to, you know, devise an ultimate cause for 
the inequality in, in the U.S. at least that's been growing since the 70s, I would place it at the feet of the petrodollar system, yeah. which kind of structurally transformed America into a country that does not have a manufacturing base that, uh, mm. you know, outsourced a lot of those middle and working class jobs abroad and turned into more of a consumption driven society, um, you know, and it caused the dollar to be kind of structurally overvalued um, would, would be sort of my ultimate assessment there as opposed to tax cuts. But it, yeah, it, the point is well taken. I agree with you about the petrodollar system, and that doesn't get talked about enough. Was the way in which the um, after the Nixon shock, when the dollar is um, the convertibility of the dollar to gold was suspended. I mean, it was very unstable there at the time. In about nineteen eighty, about nineteen seventy four, I think it was, was the OPEC agreement when they agreed to price price oil in dollars, and then you had the the recycling, the dollar recycling with you know with OPEC. Um, um, recycling their surpluses back into U- US treasuries and all the rest of it. And and we're kind of still on that, really. That's yeah. been the story of the last 50-odd years. And I agree with you that it, it's a system which has proved stable, but it's not – but it has comes at a price, which in America has been loss of your manufacturing base, really. Um, structurally overvalued dollar, the dollar dominance, which has actually increased – in the last 10 years since the financial crisis, despite the financial crisis, um, the dollar is even more dominant now in international trade than it was before. So we're actually going in the kind of in the opposite direction. And that's another thing that makes me quite sad about Bitcoin, because it was maybe an opportunity to, to just start to nibble away at that dollar dominance. We actually went in the opposite direction. Well, I I wouldn't um, count Bitcoin out just yet. You know, I think that is one yeah. of the one of the cases for Bitcoin is that it uh, is a neutral settlement asset, which could potentially denominate international trade between mutually untrusting counterparties. My guess here is that if the dollar system wanes, I think that would have to be accompanied by a geopolitical realignment, maybe America becoming more isolationist structurally and dialing down the military adventurism and so on, if the dollar's dominance actually does wane, I think we're, there's no suitable replacement that's ready to go. I don't see yeah. an alternative. I don't see the euro or the yuan being a, a full replacement. I think instead we'll have a, a patchwork of alternatives. And I think Bitcoin could well be one of those. It's just a function of getting it ready and having it be sufficiently monetized in preparation for that. But would you agree, Nick, that the, the Bitcoin itself is not ready? It's too small to serve as a, um, it's too small market cap wise, liquidity wise to denominate significant international trade or to be the asset the commodities are priced against. So Can I add to that? Yeah. That it never solved the scaling problem. It has never solved that scaling problem. And without that, it's not viable as an international settlement asset. It may be viable as a reserve asset. That's a different matter. Replace it for it in parallel with US with US treasuries and and particularly non-USD assets, because there is a shortage of non-USD denominated reserve assets. But it's not suitable as an international settlement asset for the volumes of global trade we have while it, it, it while it's unable to scale. And there is no solution at the moment. Yeah. 
I think if you're saying if Bitcoin hasn't solved the scalability mm. issue, um, not absolutely, but I think I, I know myself that I recognize it is being solved, um, uh, especially with the work recently I've seen completed by Jack Mallers with Strike, which is very interesting. Nick, what do you think on the scaling? Where do you think we are with this? We actually have three different opinions on this, so I'm, I'm <laughs> okay. actually not with you on that, Peter. So, yeah, so I, I think it's actually a misstatement to um, talk about scaling as something that needs to be solved. I think that's that's actually the wrong question to ask, basically. So, I mean, like if you think about what Bitcoin actually is, it's a big database of everyone's transactions, right? And um, there's a certain there's physical limits to how big a database can be, and we can still run it on commodity hardware, right? So there's bandwidth limits, there's storage limits, uh, and there's computation limits. And those are all different bottlenecks. So, and, and I have personal experience running enormous blockchains, non-Bitcoin ones, EOS, Ripple. Uh, Ethereum's pretty big, but not impossible to run. Some of these blockchains are in the terabytes. And at that point, it actually becomes functionally impossible to stay current on the chain tip. So, um, I mean, Francis is going to interpret this as like total confirmation of her point. <laughs> but, um, you know, I promise I'll get to, get to the rebuttal. So my view is that if you want to replicate a transactional ledger for global usage such that everyone is an equal peer on the network and it's a non-hierarchical network, there absolutely are limits to the size of that, and there's really not that much you can do fundamentally to change those those realities. It's we're bounded by Moore's law, you know. We're bounded by the amount of bandwidth, and we're having bandwidth issues on this call. Um, it's a clear yeah. demonstration of of uh, the the limits. So what I would say is like Bitcoin scales with transactional size and uh, and not with transactional count, you know, per unit time. So. I would compare it to mm, more of a Fedwire yeah. system where your average payment is is large. I mean, in the, in the millions of dollars, and so I I consider Bitcoin the settlement network to be a utility scale settlement system. Uh, I know a lot of a lot of Bitcoiners disagree. They want it to be peer to peer petty cash, right? But you know, I I consider it more to be a probably more to be suitable as a inter exchange or inter institution cross border. Settlement system with payments happening at, at other layers, or payments happening, you know, within those entities. Um, you know, for instance, if we're both on Coinbase, we can transact with each other without hitting the blockchain. So that's kind of my view of it: is that we cannot scale the data throughput by another order of magnitude, but we can scale the transactional value arbitrarily because we, you know. And that has been happening over the history of Bitcoin. I think if you looked at it today, the average Bitcoin transaction would be close to probably around a hundred thousand dollars. I haven't checked recently, but it's it's in that sort of that sort of range. Okay. So I guess Francis, your view on scaling is that it supports lower cost, smaller payments, and that isn't that hasn't been solved. I'm kind of at the coalface here, looking at how businesses are trying to do international business and, and trying to solve some of the problems they have with correspondent banking and, and um, you know, the cost of Fedwire and all those things and saying, I do not see how Bitcoin solves those problems right now. I don't see developments in it that even move it in that direction because what I'm seeing is a lot of, of navel gazing and let's have let's have digital gold and a, and a, and a, and a reserve asset, which actually isn't 
the problem that I'm trying to solve from a payments point of view, international payments. I, I don't see these these things as 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 compatible. I don't think it's. I mean, for example, one of the things that Bitcoin has never really got to grips with is the fact that the international reserve asset um, represent that the US dollar represents is actually not the US dollar. It's the US Treasury, right? The US dollar right. itself is a settlement asset. Um, you know, China doesn't hold huge quantities of actual dollars. It holds huge quantities of US treasuries, and those are its US dollar reserves. And that kind of distinction between, I guess, what you could call future money and current money, which is how we do it with um, you know, fiat currencies, we have present money, which is physical dollars, pounds, euros, whatever, in the form of bank reserves or broad money, bank money, or um, physical notes and coins, whatever it is, right? And then we have future money in the form of government debt. And it's the government debt that is the, is the reserve asset, really. Um, and it's not just the dollar, by the way, mm. dollar denominated ones, because I mean, there's a bit of a hierarchy of, of reserve assets, as you probably know. Um, what Bitcoin seems to me to be trying to do is to be both reserve asset and settlement currency. And that's why I keep coming back to the incentives. The incentives, um, when you start talking about digital gold and things like that, are for it to become this high value um, and reserve asset anchor that central banks can have on their balance sheet as universal foreign exchange reserve, right? At the same time as you're trying to say, well, businesses can use it for international transactions. And I'm going, how? Because it seems to me there are two different things here, and you haven't actually quite got your heads around the two different needs and and the the, the characteristics of the things you need to use for the, to meet those two different needs. Yeah, I that's I think that's a very astute point, honestly. Um, and uh, and and I completely agree. Bitcoiners haven't really reckoned with this this bifurcation of uh, of what Bitcoin's trying to be. If I had to pick one, I would say Bitcoin is much better suited to being a, a reserve asset in the mold of a of a de novo gold style, um, you know, monetary commodity, which uh, is is a high powered collateral. It's um, auditable, which it improves upon gold in that respect. Um, and you know, I I think what I envision is a, a neo free banking system emerging where. Entities, financial institutions issue notes against Bitcoin held on reserve. So, really, you know, looking at the work of George Seljan, Larry White, looking at that, the free banking episodes in Scotland, Canada, we had sort of free banking in the U.S., but not really. Whereas the protocol, if if you look at Bitcoin as a monetary settlement network or a means of conveying value, that's more fragile because. There, there's certainly other potential technological innovations that can steal Bitcoin's thunder in that respect. Um, and if you look at the way it's really being used today, the most popular settlement or medium of exchange on blockchains is not Bitcoin, it's not Ethereum, it's stablecoins, dollar-denominated tokens. So there's a clear revealed preference for dollar-denominated transactions from a medium of exchange perspective. Um, Bitcoin itself has been tokenized and inserted onto other settlement networks like Ethereum. So now we're seeing the asset being distinguished from the settlement network, which is a totally fascinating development. To me, that confirms the idea that Bitcoin is being treated much more as this like reserve collateral, as this 
asset that you would hold to store value over time and space, and less so as a as a system for conveying value. And now the question is, you know, does that mean the can, can Bitcoin last? Does it depend on the settlement network to exist? Mm. Because that's where the fees yeah. come from that pay the miners. So I think that would be, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to make your point for you. You just um, did actually, but, which is, you know, this. Yeah, I mean, you have got this declining yeah. block reward over time. You well, have got the hard. Can we come back to that? Yeah. Can sure. we come back to that, Francis? Um, I'll come back to that. So what I'm trying to, what I would like to get into with you there, though, Nick, is that. I guess what you're saying here, what your vision of Bitcoin is, it's quite different from a lot of other Bitcoiners who are seeing this vision of hyper-Bitcoinization, that we get to this place where suddenly everybody's paying for everything on Bitcoin, whether they're settling on the main chain or using Lightning to buy their cups of coffee. You don't actually see that as a scenario. You see Bitcoin more as a reliable global settlement. Well, I mean, I mean, and to be clear, I don't speak for Bitcoin, right? I am just a Bitcoiner with a particular attitude towards a thing, but but it's a rational argument. Yeah, but I don't mean to privilege my view over any other Bitcoiner's view by any means. And and actually, to be clear, I probably hold the minority view here within the Bitcoin community. So, but yeah, I mean, many Bitcoiners see a world where Bitcoin denominated payments are occurring that we actually switch the unit of account to bitcoin i think that's unlikely um it with gold like a lot of households hold gold but they're not making transactions in gold they hold gold as a heirloom and a, a way to store wealth uh you know safely i mean it's not in the u.s as much but uh, over overseas in other countries so i don't really anticipate that many bitcoin denominated payments occurring in the future I occasionally buy things with Bitcoin, but that's just to encourage merchants who are selling stuff for Bitcoin. Um, I always regret it when I buy stuff with Bitcoin. So, you know, I don't see that many Bitcoin denominated payments taking over. I think it's very possible that we have stable coins issued against Bitcoin in a kind of a maker style model. Uh, I think that's very, very promising. And that people would prefer to transact with a medium of exchange or unit of account that's dollar based, but then ultimately the collateral backing that uh, would be Bitcoin. So to me, that's like the synthesis of all of this: is is that you, eventually you would issue stable coins against Bitcoin, whether in a programmatic way or through an institution issuing notes. Francis, what do you feel about Nick's points here, which are quite different from many of the Bitcoiners you will have argued with on Twitter? Do do you warm to that? Not really. Um, no. <laughs> again, you have to think about the incentives. Um, I mean, you have to remember that during the period of free banking that George Selgin talks about, we were on a gold standard. I, I think people forget about this. And um, I was, I'm always amused when Americans talk about the gold standard because they never, ever mentioned the British Empire. Um, and yet we had, we're on a global gold standard because of the British Empire. That was the reason because the British pound was a gold currency. It wasn't just gold backed, it was a gold currency. The international monetary standard at the time was the British gold sovereign. And prior to that, the British gold guinea um, was the international monetary standard. So in a way, you're trying to go back to that. Now, I might look back 120 years and say, yeah, okay, now, 120 years ago, the whole world was on, a, an, it was on, a, on the classical gold standard with an actual gold currency. So in 120 years' time, maybe the whole world will be on a Bitcoin standard with Bitcoin as the international currency, international um, 
sort of main international currency. It's possible. It's just hard to see that that's necessarily going to happen, particularly with a piece of technology which is going to be obsolete by then. Um, you know, you have to start thinking about where does this take us? Gold is not a technology. Um, and you have to look at the political economy. The issue I have with this is that when you're dealing with fiat currencies or national currencies, is that the whole incentives, incentive structure around money and banks and everything else is all about keeping control of banking. Nation states keep control of banks. They really do. So the chances of a nation state um, that wasn't a basket case, and there are some basket cases like Venezuela, um, actually allowing its banking system to adopt Bitcoin as its reserve asset rather than the central bank's money is um, not great, I would suggest. Um, so then you're into kind of weird offshore entities and things like that. You're ending up with this kind of parallel banking infrastructure that is separate from the, from nation states, independent of it, somehow tethering itself to it, which is what's happening right now, um, by creating a system of shadow banks, which claim the backing of central banks by tethering themselves to a fiat currency, but actually have no right to it. Um, and like we've never seen that before, and that didn't end too well last time, did it? So I'm wondering why we're going down that path again, because I, I'm not seeing how this is going to resolve itself in a way that leaves Bitcoin as a reserve asset that's adopted by this, by nation state banks. I don't get it. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right to focus on the political economy. That uh, that that's clearly you know the the right way to analyze um, the the predominance of of currencies. Um, I think a lot of Bitcoiners see the U.S.-led petrodollar regime as degenerating right now, and I think uh, mm -hmm. it's not too difficult to arrive at that conclusion if you look at the fact that foreign central banks are generally divesting themselves of, of treasuries as opposed to acquiring them right now. Uh, you look at um, China and Russia trying to build alternatives, even our European allies trying to build alternatives to route around American dollar infrastructure. Structurally, the U.S. is a smaller share of GDP, of global GDP, than it was after World War II. So its ability to sort of maintain that dollar system seems to be decaying. And, um, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think the, the Bitcoin hypothesis here is that there isn't a worthy successor to the dollar. And, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be a number of alternative uh, modes you know, of, of commerce and alternative reserve assets, which emerge once treasuries are, you know, I think it's very possible that treasuries could be an extremely bad asset to hold over the next decade if, if the U.S., you know, adopts a more inflationary stance and, and holds interest rates really low. Um, but, I mean, to your point about central banks not, not holding Bitcoin, I mean, right now it's limited to pariah states, but there are sovereign currencies that do hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Um, so we started with the, as you say, the basket cases. So uh, it, it, it's rumored that North Korea has Bitcoin. I personally believe that. Iran seems to be undertaking an interesting approach where they have semi-nationalized mining facilities and seems like they are accumulating Bitcoin for um, international kind of trade finance purposes. Although, again, it's sort of hard to get good, good data on this. Venezuela absolutely 
uh, holds Bitcoin, that regime does. They seized a bunch of miners, so they have state-sanctioned mining operations, and uh, you can. And you, you, well, look, I look. I mean, uh, I'm just pointing out reality I'm here. I'm just finding this hilarious. Not casting aspersions. <laughs> I'm just fine. Yep. And how is this consistent with with Bitcoin? Is this decentralized asset independent of nation states when you've got miners being nationalized by by nation states? I don't get well, it. Because that doesn't really grant them a lot of control over the protocol. They're they're subservient to Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is is the dominant player in that relationship, you know? So Venezuela can try and change Bitcoin all they want. You know, they're welcome to submit a pull request on uh, on Bitcoin Core. But, uh, I mean, the hash power argument, like, sure, if, if Venezuela had 90% of hash power, I'd give you a different answer. But they have, like, 5%. So, you know, we, I guess the point I'm making is, right now, Bitcoin is in its infancy. It's still being adopted by uh, sovereigns, albeit the you know least credible ones and the ones that are the most excluded from the financial system. However, it's not like Bitcoin it has pariah status in the U.S. Like the Office of the Control of the Currency literally said the banks can hold Bitcoin for their clients if they want. They said the banks can use public blockchains for settlement purposes. So. You know, Singapore, there are, there are actual banks in Singapore which hold both fiat and cryptocurrency, um, you know, with state mandate. We've got banks in Wyoming which are narrow banks holding Bitcoin and dollars. Those, those charters have been approved. So it's not like this is not happening. I mean, we're seeing the progressive acceptance of Bitcoin at the banking layer. I mean, there's certain, a lot of examples I could point you to there. Francis, are you smirking because the examples here are rogue states with questionable governance and democratic institutions? No, I'm not. It's it's actually uh, I'm I'm smiling a bit because it's because of what it's saying about banking. So my interpretation, for example, of the Office of the Comptroller's letter was that it gave permission to banks to um, issue their own stable coins and to take over existing stable coins. I'm so mindful of the fact that um, that uh, Goldman Sachs already has a stake in Circle. Um, yeah. So I didn't see that letter quite the same way you did, Nick. You see, I well, mean, uh, I'm referring and, to two letters. To be clear, there was okay, fair enough. There was um, the prior letter where they said they can custody Bitcoin on behalf of their clients, which and is I just, think also, and I think also, there's a huge difference between custody, custodying an asset on behalf of your clients and adopting yourself as a reserve asset are two entirely different things. And I don't think we should confuse the two. It's perfectly reasonable for um, banks, you know, with the approval of the regulators to custody any asset, and that might include Bitcoin. Um, that's very different from using it themselves as reserve asset. As it stands, um, any bank that yeah. wants access to the Federal to, to Fedwa has to use um, uh, dollar reserves. Yeah, that that's correct. I mean, um, there's accounting issues to be worked out and just acceptability issues as well. I guess the point was that we're progressing from Bitcoin having zero acceptability to now partial acceptability in banking use cases. And I think it, you know, I think it's more that Bitcoin is more accepted as an asset. Because, I mean, I keep coming back to the fact that banking is not a custody model. Banks will custody assets 
they will act as you know act as custodians but the basic banking model is not a custody model when you put a deposit in a bank you're not put, give, putting that money in custody you're lending right. it to the bank yeah um and that model that fundamental model of banking where you lend your money to the bank and the bank lends money to other people and it makes um, makes money on the spread between the amount at which it, the rate at which it lends and the rate it pays you. That fundamental model of banking, that Bitcoin's not part of that at all at the moment. Well, well, I mean, uh, well, not well, so Peter yeah. knows because one of the sponsors yeah. of his show is BlockFi. They do exactly yeah. this. They have billions of dollars of Bitcoin, you know, being lent to them by people like myself and and Peter, and they lend it out on the other end. So they're engaging in banking. Activity, maturity, transformation, whatever you want to call it. They're not a chartered bank in the US, but we have these institutions that are doing this, right? At, well, at scale. I did say I did say shadow banks and unregulated banks, that's what shadow banks are. So you've got unregulated banks with no banking licenses and no access to the Federal Reserve, um, taking deposits and lending. Um, they're called shadow banks. Um well, whatever you want we, to call they them, always, you know. they always they always exist. Francis, what's wrong with shadow banks just out of interest? Well, what, what, give me the the argument against them. Well, I don't, I don't think shadow banks can ever be stopped. There will always be um, institutions that exist outside the regulated infrastructure. There always will be. Um, I think where we get into trouble is where they start to become very big and very dominant, and they tie themselves into the regulated system and transfer their risks to the regulated system. And that's when we end up with something like 2008, which was a shadow banking collapse where the risks of those shadow banks ended up in the regulated system, bringing down regulated banks and forcing um, central banks and governments to bail them out. That's the risk. Now, if so, you, so you blame the 2008 crisis on shadow banking? Oh gosh, yes. That, that's there's nothing controversial about that, Peter, at all. Yeah, it's absolutely mm. about I'm shadow with, banking. I'm with Francis on that, honestly. But, but just so, so, just so I understand, explain to me which are the which are the shadow banks? Give me an example and why they caused the 2008 financial crisis. Well, shadow banks at the time included, um, you know, thing, thing, things like, would you believe, Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers were shadow banks. They weren't regulated banks. They were huge. Um, and also the foreign arms, the US arms of uh, regulated European banks were part of the shadow banking infrastructure in the United States. It was the offshore, you can think of it as the offshore banking structure. But it's surprising how many of what we think of as investment banks were actually shadow banks. Lehman Brothers was a shadow bank and Goldman Sachs was at the time. It became a regulated bank after the financial crisis. So and if they were, were regulated, talking, mm. sorry, if, sorry, just so I understand. Uh, so if they were regulated, what would they have been doing differently? Well, um, I mean, it's it's jurisdictionally how 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 banks qualify for banking licenses, full banking licenses, the structures they have to have, and the regulations they have to submit themselves to depends on the jurisdiction. But basically, any bank that now that is regulated does have to submit itself to. The regulations of that jurisdiction. Now, a lot of those are governed these days, or at least um, not governed, but but certainly influenced by the Basel requirements for capital, capital and liquidity, um, which have been beefed up considerably since the financial crisis. But also in the United States, things like the Dodd Frank legislation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the UK, things like ring fencing. 
Um, these are in the in in Europe in the EU things like the Bank Resolution and um, Directive. Um, those are all jurisdictional, um, and any bank that acquires a, a banking license within that jurisdiction will have to uh, be governed by those regulations and supervised by whichever regulators in that jurisdiction are appropriate for it. So um, anything that is doing bank-like things that is operating outside those regulated structures is a shadow bank. And there's lots of different kinds of them. And it's not surprising mm-hmm. that the cryptocurrency ecosystem has grown, is growing a lot of shadow banks. Um, the question is whether they'd ever be brought back into the fold. Next up, we get back into the debate between Francis and Nick. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, Kraken. If you're new to Bitcoin and if you're looking for exchange, you may want to go and check Kraken out because they are my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin. And it's the only place I use. And you want to know why, right? You think it's just because they're a sponsor, Pete? No, they are consistently rated the best and most secure crypto exchange. And security has always been really important to me. They also have the best in class in customer service. So whatever issue you have, whoever you are, wherever you are, if you reach out, they're going to get that shit fixed for you. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have every tool you could possibly need. So whatever your level of experience, at Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile first app so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. And with their margin trading, futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Also, let's talk about BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. They've crushed it this last two years and they're going to crush it this year as well. And they've recently had this huge announcement. They are launching a Bitcoin Rewards Visa credit card in early 2021. This is something I've been very excited about. You can earn a market leading 1.5% rewards rate in Bitcoin on all card purchases. Yes, you can stack sats as you buy things on your card. Look, the waitlist registration is now open for registered BlockFi clients. And if you want to join the priority waiting list, you just need to open up a BlockFi account. The public waitlist is slated to open any day now. And if you want to check out BlockFi, I do recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. So you think it's important to have regulation, and this would be something that a not all, but Nick, a lot of Bitcoiners hate. They hate regulation. They want perfect. They want no regulation, perfectly free markets. Um, but the idea that actually it was the lack of regulation that caused the two thousand eight financial crisis, and without regulation, we could see other financial crises within, say, Bitcoin. Yeah, um, we've actually seen financial crises within Bitcoin already. I mean, what do you think some of the exchange crashes are? I mean, exchanges are unregulated banks, and you've had exchange crashes like, you know, how many <laughs> littered with them? They're not a problem as long as they stay within that ecosystem, you know, and as long as people take losses within that ecosystem and, you know, the exchanges and whatever do whatever they have to do to to uh, recompense their, their depositors, you know, Bitfinex applying haircuts to everybody and, and, and then issuing a token to try and recover the money and all that kind of stuff. But as long as they're doing that then they're not causing a danger to anybody. The problem with the pre-2008 shadow backing was it was built on top of the regulated structure, transferred its risks to the regulated structure, and then we ended up with an awful lot of spillover effects to the, to the real economy 
Um, and at that point, you have central banks and, and governments stepping in because the, the social harm is so great. And that was the problem. And where I start to feel worried with um, shadow with crypto shadow banks is when they start trawling for retail customers, because that's when you start to see that kind of level of potential social harm developing. It worries me hugely um, when I see, I don't know if you saw this, Nick, earlier this year when um, I think it was Uphold was trawling, blatantly trawling for retail customers and saying that its accounts, its deposit accounts were the equivalent of FTIC insured bank accounts when they weren't. Yeah. Um, no, and I as mean, you know, I... cred went but went belly up in, in November. Yeah. So... I... To be clear, I find that kind of thing reprehensible. Um, yeah. You know, making like misleading claims about the the quality, uh, especially when lending is occurring. Mm -hmm. And obviously, there's no FDIC in crypto. That's impossible because you can't print more Bitcoin. I think, though, generally, my my reaction to this would be, you know, as you point out, the risk is largely contained when exchanges fail because mm -hmm. there's there's not a lot of sort of risk sharing between exchanges, banks, whatever you want to call them. Um, I think another thing that would make Bitcoin less likely to have these buildup of credit bubbles and then that explode all at once would be the nature of Bitcoin as collateral. So Bitcoin is highly auditable. I can prove to you cryptographically that I own some. Can't do that with gold. It's very hard with regular financial assets. You know, um, That was one of the issues, I think, with the financial crisis is that you know, multiple. There were multiple claimants on the same collateral. You know, the yeah. same collateral was rehypothecated many times. Uh, with with crypto assets, they're in, built to be strongly auditable by definition from scratch. They're natively digital. That's the special thing about them. So, an exchange, for instance, if I asked, could prove to me that they had coins that they had reserves corresponding to all the outstanding liabilities. Now, that doesn't happen a lot. Much to my chagrin, because trust me, I ask the exchanges, and they are—they don't do this very often. You know, there's a process called proof of reserves. Doesn't happen very much. I wish it would, but in theory, we could achieve a very strong level of uh, of transparency from uh, these deposit-taking institutions. We could have provable reserve ratios, or some of them are narrow banks, right? And so we could have, you know, full reserve proofs of that. So. To me, like crypto assets help prevent this unsustainable buildup of, of leverage and credit, at least if users are willing to take advantage of that crypto, the like this actual cryptographic auditability that these assets afford us. Francis, would you also would you also think about the fact that the FDIC insurance actually creates the wrong incentives for banks? Um, as far as I'm aware, from when I did my uh, research on a recent project, it was under the Clinton regime where they actually changed the rules for the banking infrastructure. They wanted to encourage more people to be able to borrow, um, and they, they, I think they reduced the rate. I can't remember what they reduced the rate to, but it, essentially the FDIC insurance became a kind of backup for banks to be able to lend more and, and not really have too much concerns about uh, delinquent loans. Do you not actually think that FDIC, FDIC insurance actually encourages uh, poor, be poor behavior as well. Yeah, and the moral hazard issue from bank deposit insurance is one of these sort of long-running arguments um, about um, how you make banks safe and how you protect the money, the money of depositors. Um, there is a fundamental um, problem 
at the heart of banking and that it doesn't matter what banks are lending, you always have this problem, which is that on the deposit side, you have a bunch of people lending money to the bank, thinking the the bank is going to keep it safe for them and just let them take out money whenever they want and pay make whatever payments they need to make from their bank accounts and whatever. And on the other hand side, the bank is lending it out uh, it's not, it's lending money, let's put it that way. I, we have to be careful about terminology because banks don't actually lend out the money they take as deposits. It's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, but lending money, which puts those deposits at risk because the deposits are not in custody. It's not client funds. This isn't like um, asset management. Yeah, they've actually lent the money um, and therefore their, their claim on the bank is one of a creditor. Um, now, they may be their senior creditors, but unless there are other things in place to protect those depositors in the event of the loans going sour, and loans do go sour, it is of the nature of lending that a proportion of loans either won't be paid or won't fully be repaid, and the or and of the nature of investing in loan assets, so tradables, um, that their price varies. Um, that there needs to be some kind of buffer to protect those depositors. And that's a lot of the regulation since the financial crisis has been about ensuring that fiat currency banks have those buffers in place. It's not about having cash reserves. It's about having equity. It's about having shareholders you know, with, some, you know, with, with some skin in the game. That's what it's been all about. Um, and I have been very concerned about the opacity, I'm going to share Nick's concerns here, about the opacity of, of crypto exchanges and stablecoin issuers because it seems to be that they're not doing a lot of the things we've had to make banks do to protect depositors. Um, whenever you've got... But, but strictly speaking, with Bitcoiners, you have the ability to be self-sovereign in a different way that you can with your dollars. It's slightly different with your pounds and dollars to keep them under the, under the, uh, under the bed. The, the fact that you can custody your own Bitcoin does mean you aren't reliant upon exchanges and such. And so we we all within the Bitcoin world pretty much encourage people to learn to be self-sovereign so you don't have to have that risk. So it is slightly different. I think we're moving, I think if you're moving risk around, if you are relying on somebody else to custody it, you're taking that risk. But that's the risk you take. But you have the opportunity to self-custody. Well, that's that's true. But when you self-custody, you, you lose liquidity. Um, that's true in Bitcoin as anything else. So if you want to have an instantly liquid account from which you can make payments, it's actually extremely difficult to do if you're self-custodying. Um, you know, so it's not quite that simple, is it? And and it is always that trade-off between safety and liquidity. And this is true even in, in conventional bank accounts. The more secure you make your account, the more difficult it is to use. Um, and that, that's true in the Bitcoin world in cryptocurrencies as well. Um, it's also the fact that, you know, in a way, banks are the gateway to real-world payments in a way that, that um, crypto exchanges aren't. They're, they're not managing main payments in the way that, that, that uh, mainstream banks are. And until we have that kind of um, payment infrastructure operating through in the crypto world, we're not comparing like with like. Nearly all crypto um, transactions at the moment are just simply to buy other cryptocurrencies. Um, they're not to buy... To pay your mortgage or 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 or, or your fill up your car with with gasoline or whatever, um, and until we've got that, but that's what people use their bank accounts for, um, and until we've got that kind of 
of, of functionality in the crypto crypto world. We're not comparing like with like. So I think we need to be a bit careful um, comparing crypto banks with conventional banks because they're not doing the same job right now. Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I mean, they definitely are different because using a crypto bank is like using, well, maybe it's not, but it, it kind of reminds me of using a... Um, a bank and then having as a retail individual access to the Fedwire system as well, um, you know, uh, and, and able to access that sort of high-powered uh, settlement infrastructure. Um, and I guess the disanalogy also that Peter was referring to is the fact that you can easily reserve that base, you can withdraw the base asset from the bank, whereas that's not really possible with a, with a regular commercial bank. I mean, I suppose you can pull out physical currency, which I guess I would call base money from the bank. Uh, but for the most part, people's deposits stay trapped in the banking system. So there's something different, you know, about fiat, regular conventional commercial banking and crypto banking, whereby you're less indexed to the system as a crypto depositor. You can always exit should you choose to. Mm. I mean, my I guess I, I agree. I think there are ser- serious disanalogies. See, I, I grew up in, in, I'm older than you, and I grew up in a time when cash was dominant and most people worked in cash and quite a lot of people didn't even have bank accounts. You know, so in a way, um, you know, you look over, I look over my lifetime and see how um, things have changed. So I don't really agree with you there. The fact that people now choose to operate mostly through the commercial banking system just shows is a development of the last 50 years. Um, right. It's not necessary we could revert to using physical cash it's just less convenient it, it's well, just a convenience the, thing well that's why we invented digital cash right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the thing is is as uh, i think it becomes even worse with the advent of cbdc's whereby you have nothing you will be able to withdraw you will never hold or own your cash everything will be an iou well i mean and well, worse I, than that yeah. is that CBDCs can be weaponized for surveillance or control, uh-huh. right? So, so like mm. to me, that's why it, cash, physical cash, is a great product. It, to me, it's amazing. I love it. I mean, I don't love having lots of cash. I don't really use it ever, but I wish people did use it more. No, I, I'm in agreement mm. with Nick on this. It's been a, a theme of mine for some years that the power to shun, um, really, to shut pe- somebody out of everything that makes life possible, is a power that governments shouldn't have. Um, so I actually think we need things that people can use outside the government control system. And this makes like me sound Bitcoin. like, you this sound makes like me a Bitcoin. Sound like a Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. we go. <laughs> 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 yeah. I have never been wholly opposed to the principle. I told you that, yeah. but I was disappointed that it progress. has suddenly become this digital gold asset. When that, for me, that wasn't wasn't what was needed. What was yeah. needed was the means for people to tra- transact outside the government control system. They've always needed that because we have to have, people have, it has to be possible for people to live. Nick, I think we need to take the win here. We need to. I agreed with a lot of what Francis had to say too. So I think I she know. scored some points for this is, sure. This is, this, this is highly reasonable. Well, there is another thing we need to talk about. Something you've been a bit teased about. We need to talk about scarcity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I knew you were going to get to this, that. Well, <laughs> well you're, I think you're going to find that we're actually on the same side of that one, too. Well, so do you want to explain your point with regards to scarcity, Francis? 
I'll try. Okay, there are two aspects to this. So we can look at scarcity from the point of view of Bitcoin on the uh, of the hard cap, and also the subdivision. I dealt with the hard cap first. Um, that um, which is a lot to do with obsolescence and belief and and community and networks and stuff like that. So let's talk about the hard cap first because there's a lot of faith involved in this. We're told that there will only ever be 21 million bitcoins, and I go pull the other one um, because and you've alluded to this already that when you as your um, as the um, number of bitcoins being produced as the block reward diminishes, um, so transaction fees become more important. And as your as your transaction fees rise, which they must, then you know the number of transactions on your network is going to decline. If you're not careful, you're going to end up compromising your security model. So it may well be that the 21 million limit does have to be rethought at some point. It is something the community may have to face. And I wouldn't personally rule that out. And for that reason, I would not like to say that 21 million was necessarily fixed in stone. My second point about this concerns obsolescence. Remember what I said earlier about 120 years ago, the whole world was on a dollar standard and a gold standard. And nobody would have foreseen that in 120 years' time, we would have the gold would be demonetized and the whole world would be on a dollar standard, right? Equally, we cannot foresee what the world will be like in 120 years' time when the block reward finally ends. And it is that far away. I know it diminishes over that time. So in a way, these things will have to be thought about sooner. But the actual 21 million limit isn't hit until about 2140. Yeah. Now, that's long after all of us are dead. We have no idea what the community of that time will decide. We have no idea if they'll even still be using Bitcoin. I mean, if you look back to the technology of the year 1900, there's not a great deal that was being used then. It was new technology then that we're still using now. It would be like still driving around in, in kind of antique cars. So yeah. I, I'm very concerned by this kind of 21 million hard, hard limit because I don't think it's, it's, it's credible as a, as a limit, as a hard limit like that. I think what's more important, actually, in terms of scarcity, is actually the, the supply rates, the, the rate of increase, which is fixed and known and reduces at each halving, right? That's actually much more important because it means that when you have changes in swings in demand for Bitcoin, which you do, so in the last week we've had quite, in the last few weeks we've had quite an increase in demand for Bitcoin, right? Um, supply can't, supply, the production rate can't increase, right? So the only thing that can adjust is the price, so volatility, I know people saying volatility, volatility will, will decrease over time. And I go, no, it won't. Because the whole thing is demand is volatile, uh, naturally volatile. Demand for everything is volatile. Um, and Bitcoin cannot respond to demand changes. So there will always be volatility in the price. Now, it's of the, of the nature of a market, of a free market. There's some people are priced out of a market. So when demand for Bitcoin is rising, more people are going to be priced out of the market. It will become, in that sense, more scarce simply because the price is rising. And similarly, when the price falls, you know, more people can come into the market. I mean, heavens, this works on the mining side. This is how the difficulty adjustment works on the mining side. <laughs> um, no, it's no particular reason why it wouldn't work in the price market for Bitcoin itself. Um, 
what muddied the waters considerably regarding that kind of innate changes in in, in supply and demand equilibrium, whereby the price adjusts to equi- equilibrate supply and demand, which is basic economics really, um, is the subdivision. Because um, I got pilloried quite a lot on Twitter for saying that the subdivision made um, Bitcoin less scarce, um, which was kind of upset quite a lot of people and and uh, and made a lot of people laugh and there were lots of jokes about pizza but what i would like to say is that um by su- subdividing something like bitcoin you make it possible for more people to buy into it so you've increased its liquidity yeah so even when your price is rising in a way you're still supporting demand for it it, does that make sense? Um, if you, the more you can subdivide it, you can sh- yeah maintain yeah. your demand. Because let's say if there if the yeah. the smallest unit of Bitcoin was one Bitcoin, then it would you, your point is it would price out people as as the unit price rose. Absolutely, yeah. And um, you know, to talk about pizza for a minute, so I'm never, there are physical limits to the amount you can subdivide pizza, obviously, and Bitcoin you can subdivide down to much tinier fragments. But if you think about uh, it, it I, so you I, just, I, I think I see the point you're making. You're saying yeah, sub- subdividing well, gonna, it makes it more abundant because it, it yeah. makes it more liquid at higher unit prices, basically. Yeah, and it can bring in people who would not buy a whole Bitcoin. Just as if you sell slices of pizza, you can attract people who wouldn't buy a whole pizza. So you've almost got it, potentially got it. Here he is with the pizza. I had to bring the pizza. I had to bring the pizza in, didn't I? I mean, it just was necessary. So you see, he's got a slice of pizza. Yeah. Actually, I I keep running. I've not run out. I've been eating it the whole (laughs) interview. And every time, I'm getting really hungry, dude. Every 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 time I run out, I just get the pizza cutter, cut it in half, Um, and I've got more. Okay. All right. Well, we got yeah, our jobs okay. in. Um, okay, we got the idea. Yeah, yeah. So, but but the point I'm making is it can actually create a new market. Um, the people who would not have bought a whole Bitcoin might actually buy a small amount of a Bitcoin. Um, but so it makes it more accessible. Francis, are you saying that the smaller subdivisions of Bitcoin makes it potentially increases demand basically uh, by by opening it up to a, a bigger market kind of sector? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, it opens it up to the kind of market that, that might have come in earlier if it hadn't been so geeky in its early years and nobody understood it. You know, back back in the day when it was worth a few pounds, a few, a few dollars. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's opening up to, to those sort of people, to much lower income people, people who can't afford to buy a whole Bitcoin, but they can buy a few Satoshi, right? Yeah. They can um, do that now. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And that, that was all I was saying. Uh, when I said that the subdivision, the ability to buy Satoshis rather than just Bitcoin makes it more abundant, makes it less scarce than it would be if all you I could see. buy was single Bitcoin. That was but, all I meant. I mean, I, but it sounds like you're making a point in favor of the subdivision being good for Bitcoin, good for the unit price of Bitcoin. Well, it kind of is. We had a bit of a debate on Twitter about whether subdividing something um, increased the price. And um, there was quite, it's just kind of economist discussion. It was a very interesting yeah. one, and I need to write up what I think. Because I think that when you start, I think it, divide, does. it does in the short run, right? I don't think it does mm-hmm. in the long run. 
<laughs> it's one of these short run versus long run things that we get in economics, <laughs> right? Where in the short run it raises the price, but then um, you get what we you get diminishing returns. And once everybody's got some or everybody's got, you know, yeah, whatever, then the price falls back down again. And over the long run, it doesn't make any difference. That that's my opinion. But well, you know, you know, economists don't agree on this. <laughs> there are other people who said it didn't make any difference at all, and others who said, oh yes, it definitely raises the price. And yeah. None of us actually know. <laughs> Can I give my view on Bitcoin scarcity? Yes, yeah. please do, because I I disagree with Francis, but I don't know how to articulate it. But <laughs> so that's why you're here anyway, Nick. I mean, honestly, I think it's totally contingent. Like what the what the subdivision of Bitcoin is. So right, like you can divide a Bitcoin into hundred million units. That was what Satoshi picked. Um, you 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 could optionally make a change to the protocol. It wouldn't be that hard to add more decimals. So yeah. there's nothing about Bitcoin that really requires that the smallest unit is a Satoshi. You could go smaller if you wanted. We could make an agreement for us to exchange a tenth of a Satoshi, and there we you know we subdivided Bitcoin. Right? You can do probabilistic payments on Lightning. That's sub Satoshi payments. So anyway, the point is. There's no lower bound. There's no plank length equivalent for Bitcoin, right? Like in the real world, we have the tiniest subdivisions. Well, I guess I don't know that much about subatomic particles, but uh, let's just entertain the fact that there's like a truly discrete unit as you get small enough. With Bitcoin, it's software. You can get as small as you want, uh, you know, infinitely. So I don't even think about units of Bitcoin, I think about quantities of Bitcoin. You know, so I think of Bitcoin more as kind of like a liquid and you can put it in cups in your mind. UTXOs, those are sort of cups containing certain amounts of Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, so that's when it's useful to reason about it in the sense of like dividing up a pizza because you don't ever have really one unit of Bitcoin. You have one twenty-one millionth of the entire supply. You know, I think that's really the way yeah, to think about it. That's another way of looking at it. Um, and... I don't think Bitcoin can be really scarce or abundant. There's just a set amount of it, and there's a set amount of sort of purchasing power that is allocated to it. The same way that you know the Earth allocates nine trillion dollars worth of purchasing power in real terms to gold, we allocate uh, five hundred billion or whatever it is of purchasing power to Bitcoin, all the outstanding Bitcoins. Um, but you know, as you say, Francis. Um, Demand is what determines the price of Bitcoin. The supply is totally invariant, really. Uh, I mean, it changes a little bit, but not really. And uh, so we just reprice Bitcoin based on what demand happens to be uh, at a given time. So I don't really think of it as scarce or abundant. It's just kind of there's a certain quantity of it, and uh, the the value varies uh, in real terms as as demand fluctuates. So. I, I don't really understand the brouhaha around uh, Bitcoin scarcity at all. Uh, it doesn't seem that complicated to me. Well, for somebody like myself, trying to understand it, there's 21 million, and we have eight de decimal places per Bitcoin. If you subdivide that further, it still doesn't change the fact there's 21 million. Yes, more people can access it, but the scarcity is... is it doesn't... Uh, yeah. I actually think I don't consider Bitcoin scarce though, right? Like scarce is limited. something where Yeah, yeah, it's it's like kind of fixed in finite. supply, finite. Yeah, but yeah. scarce is like there's no finite. necessary quantity of Bitcoin that the world needs. There could be one unit of Bitcoin, and in my view that would be yes. sufficient, right? We would just have to figure out how to divide it up. 
like scarcity is something like water where we have a necessary physical amount of it that we need to survive. But with Bitcoin, there's no physical tether. There's no requirement that we have a certain amount of it. So I, I don't consider the word scarcity like apply to it, basically. But I think the important point is, is if we subdivide it further, it's not going to materially change the price. It's not like if we suddenly went to 42 million, we changed the issuance rate. If we subdivide it further, that's not going to dilute the price. Yeah, I don't think that's the point Francis was making, though. I think she was pointing out that there are second order effects on the price based on sort of how the market is able to engage with Bitcoin. Certainly, if there was only one unit of Bitcoin, then it couldn't have reasonably monetized. Uh, so, so adding the subdivision helps the monetization. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. That it simply makes it more liquid. And um, generally speaking, over the long run, making something more liquid um, tends to reduce right. its price. But in the short run, it can increase it, which is why I said I would expect the price to go up in the short run and fall again in the long run. Uh, and over the very long term, I don't think it would make a great deal of difference. But it doesn't change. It doesn't change how how much Bitcoin there is. But I think this use of the word scarce um, is a little bit loose. And actually, to be fair, um, somebody picked me up on this on Twitter about this rather loose use of the word scarce, because actually, in economic terms, everything is scarce, because economics is about the allocation of scarce resources and markets. What markets do is allocate scarce resources and prices the mechanism by which they do it. So to say as a kind of a, 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 a good thing, oh, Bitcoin is scarce, and kind of, well, everything's scarce. What exactly are you trying to say here? You're saying that Bitcoin has a finite yeah. supply. There can only be 21 million of it. And to have any more of it, you've actually got, the community's actually got to change its mind about what it wants has actually got to be a change to the code. Then there are those who say, well, that would be a hard fork and that wouldn't be Bitcoin and we can have that argument all over again. So <laughs> That's my side. Um, that's the point. That's know, the yeah. side I would take. Yeah, I forgot <laughs> yeah, to even exactly. address that. Exactly. But so, that, that's like maybe less interesting because yeah. we've been over it like a zillion times. Yeah. It's, actually, yeah. it's actually not but that it's helps, interesting. But I think the scarcity <laughs> point, Francis, is helpful for people to understand. Like we're not, we're not all economists. Mm. I think there's a lot of people like me who actually are just kind of like, yeah. you know, just trying to figure out how to invest in a few things and make a bit yeah. of money and, and get by in life, right? We're, we're not as an economist like you. We're not all smart like Nick. Some of us are oh, just trying to understand this. And the 21 million, the point of the scarcity mm. is that, to me, the scarcity says this is a race. You know, this is a race to get as much Bitcoin as you can because because there isn't a mm. lot to go around, right? There is a limit. It isn't unlimited, let's say. And I think that's the scarcity. That's the point mm. that someone like me understands from it. So whilst Nick says... You know, it isn't. Yeah, you know, it isn't as such. For me, it is scarce because I think right there is only twenty-one million. Yeah. Well, it might the, be the easier if we just scarcity. talk. We could talk about it being fixed or finite. I I think those are maybe better descriptions of what it is. Hmm. I mean, yeah, yeah. But I think Although, it's. A, I think it's a, I think it has the same meaning to somebody. Whichever, whether you talk about finite hmm. or scarce, I think the intrinsic meaning to somebody is there is a limited amount, um, and they they might become harder to get. Um, as as the uh, issuance rate changes with every halving, and I think that's what that's an important concept that's for that. us. And to to them for, for someone to say, well, you can subdivide it further to make it less scarce. I don't think it changes that because there is still twenty one million Bitcoin. There's still that limitation. Sure, 
Sure. I mean, you know, and I'm not saying differently. I mean, I certainly wasn't saying that subdividing it created additional bitcoins. Um, I'm, it, it's yeah. not cloning. It's not cloning. We um, were knocking down a well, not me, but bitcoiners were knocking down a straw man version of Francis's argument. To be fair, they, they were a bit. Although I did did feel like pointing them towards cloning as an example, or even just kind of um, any form of um, asexual reproduction as a case of subdividing something, creating more of it. Um, but then thought, no, perhaps not. But again, I don't think it does create more <laughs> but, of it. But, I don't think it does. No. Because it, no, if but things that's are priced what, in Bitcoin and you subdivide it further, you've just got further decimal places. It doesn't... No, absolutely. That's what we were yeah. saying. Whereas, whereas, yeah, but, whereas, I, yeah, but with reproduction was, does create something new. It does increase the total population. And I was... And I was saying that, and I wasn't saying that was what was happening. Right. Not at all. What I was saying yeah. was simply, all I was saying was that subdividing it made it more accessible. But that's, that's and true. Therefore, it could create new markets for, for people who are currently priced out if what you're selling is whole Bitcoins. Um, that's all. So you've potentially got greater demand at least in the short term, and that's going to push up your price a bit. That was all I was saying. I think that argument's correct, really. though, but I, I think I think mm. saying that it uh, it isn't scarce, like whatever the language is, I I, I think that's wrong. But I, 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 now you've explained it, I agree with the point. One of the funny thing is, things is, I, I you know, let people know the show's out. People can't wait. Um, and one thing I will say <laughs> is debating you like this and talking to you, it's a lot more rational and better than on Twitter. And I think some people are going to be going to be surprised by this. I'm just conscious of time. We don't... People are going to be disappointed, yeah. I think. <laughs> we didn't yell well, at Francis. They we think were too I'm nice. going to be a headbanger. No. Well, listen, yeah, but I think one of the other things is, I think by the end of this, I think you're, I would say, you probably disagree, I think you're slightly more of a Bitcoiner than you were at the start. I have that feeling, but you might not want to admit mm, that. Or I might really. be wrong. I, dis I disagree. No, well, I said at the start that the, the whole space, I think, is interesting. And like I said, I do think it's important that people have something they can use that is outside the government-controlled system. I'm not, I'm, not very, I'm not very MMT, you know, this kind of sort of the state is everything yeah. and you shall all use state money and we must clamp down on everything that isn't state money. Sorry, I'm not very into that, really. Um, well, so, Francis, I, if I sent you some Bitcoin, what, if I sent you some Bitcoin, what would you do with it? Um... <laughs> I might sell it. <laughs> sell it because you think the price is high now or sell it because ethically you don't want to hold it? I think ethically I don't want to hold Bitcoin. I have real concerns ethically with Bitcoin for a number of reasons, which we haven't got into to do with its, its um, energy use and stuff like that. I do think proof of work does need to be reconsidered if it's to be, if it's to be a mainstream thing. So I might exchange it for something that's less environmentally damaging. But that that's, you know... <laughs> personal view well there's i've got that on my list the other thing um, i've got on my list is tether um ah. but we but we have done nearly two hours now so I yeah mean, really so yeah, we, we could have... we could we could either carry on or we can reconvene and do a part two and touch on energy wow. consumption and tether so I, I would suggest this is a good good ending point i think this has been fantastic uh i think we should reconvene and do a part two and talk about energy consumption and tether and perhaps yeah, see if there's anything else how do you feel about that nick well those are two of my favorite topics so so we're gonna have to do you it. know i mean as long as francis is game you might be getting sick of us at this point no, I'm, cool. I'm cool right That's good well, I'm going to draw this one to a close. I'm going to uh, reconvene over email and book a part two when we can cover those okay. parts. But I, I just want to say, Francis, um, you are very different in person from how you come across on Twitter. I thought you were like a rah, raging <laughs> Bitcoin hater. I don't agree with everything you said, but I think this has been a, a very fair debate. I think people are going to be very disappointed. 
Um, no but doubt. at the same time, I, I, I've learned a lot from this. Um, I'm very intrigued to spend. I actually want to make another show with you, Nick, about your thesis that we covered kind of of what Bitcoin really is, because I think I'm more drawn mm. to that than the hyper Bitcoinization one. So we can get you up to number eight, Nick, and lead in the chart. Okay. Well, okay. listen, thank you, both of you. Uh, appreciate your time. Let's reconvene for a part two soon. Um, yeah, take care. Thank you. Pleasure. It's been good. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Francis. Okay. What did you think of that one? Did you enjoy it? Wasn't exactly what we all expected, right? Uh, and I'll be interested on the feedback on this show. Like I said, I think Francis was more than reasonable. I think she made some good points. I think it's very, very interesting to discuss these things. I also think Nick did a great job. And like I say, it wasn't what I expected. I thought there would be more disagreement between them, especially on the topic of scarcity. And I also thought Francis' point on scarcity was a clear example of why these debates don't really work on Twitter. And some of the nuance or context is lost. Um, but with this, you could kind of see the point that Francis was making, whether you agree with her or not. Now, I don't think either Francis or Nick changed their minds too much during this. Well, I think Francis may have a little, but I doubt she'll admit it. But it was really interesting to hear both sides of this debate. And I will definitely be doing a part two, as there was a bunch of things we didn't get to talk about that we want to do. So thanks for listening. Uh, big thanks to Francis for coming on and also Nick as ever, buddy. Thanks for coming on. If you've got any questions or feedback about the show, you can hit me up. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do reply to anyone. If you want to support the show, please go and leave me a review on iTunes. If you're not on Apple, Stitcher or Pocket Cast or something else, they all really help with the rankings. Outside of that, go and check out Defiance. As I said in the intro, I've just released a show about election fraud and media bias following all the weirdness that's been going on in the US following the election. That's with Isaac Soul. I've had some really great feedback on that show. People are really enjoying it. So definitely go and check that out. That's at defiance.news. Hopefully Bitcoin will keep mooning. Have a great weekend. Love you all. And I'll see you all next week. <laughs>